Plato was one of the greatest poetic and philosophical talents of ancient Greece, and yet he has a very ambivalent relationship with poetry. In the Republic, probably Plato's greatest dialogue, he accuses the poets of being dangerous miseducators of youth, and he thinks that the poets ought to be censored. He thinks that we ought to prevent dangerous and bad myths from being transmitted to the youth of the ideal city on account of the fact that it will deform their souls and undermine their philosophical education. And yet, it's strange for someone whose work is replete with poetry and metaphor and non-literal image to be so negative and so critical of the poetic tradition that comes out of Greece. Much of it comes from the fact that Plato thought that Homer had had a bad effect on Greek culture in the sense that Homer miseducated young men to try and become something like the Homeric heroes, heroes of wrath, heroes of passion, men of violence rather than men of philosophical morality and philosophical virtue. So it's not that Plato necessarily disapproves of poetry because he himself is one of the great poets of ancient Greece. In fact, what he wants to do is allow for a certain kind of poetry, poetry which properly educates youth, and on the other hand, limit that the access of youth to poetry, limit, limit the access of youth to poetry that is good for their souls, that will give them a good education. Now, the greatest of Plato's poetic con constructs is, I would say, Socrates. And Socrates has very interesting things to say about poetry. Um, he can be very hard on the poets. Some of the things that he says in the Republic uh, lead to censorship and a kind of closing off of society. Many critics of Socrates and the Platonic tradition have pointed that out. But it's worth considering that just before his death, Socrates wrote poetry. And that's written by Plato. I mean, it's not a matter of historical fact. Actually, it's found in the dialogues that, are, that come just before the death of Socrates. Particularly in the Phaedo, Socrates says that he had a dream. And that in his dream, he was told, Socrates, study poetry, practice and cultivate the arts. And Socrates is taken aback at this. Because all through his life, he had practiced and cultivated the arts, but he thought that he could practice and cultivate the arts by cultivating the one single highest art, the philosophical art, the art of dialectic. But just to make sure that he's got all the bases covered, to make sure that he's appropriately following his daimon's injunctions, Socrates decides that what he's going to do is going to write some poetry just before he dies. A very surprising thing, because Socrates isn't the sort of man to get rattled. He's a man of philosophical courage and fortitude, who has the, uh, the option of escaping from jail and running away, but he's not afraid of death. He is afraid of disobeying the injunctions that he gets in his dreams, and in particular, he wants to make sure that he's done what he ought to have done. He decides to write poetry. He takes the hymn to Apollo and turns it into verse, and he also takes the fables of Aesop and turns those into verse. And it's interesting that Socrates, at the very end of his life, should turn poet. I don't think we can read this as a kind of rejection of Socrates' life, but it's a way of acknowledging Socrates' piety. He wants to make sure that he's done the right thing by the spirits that move him or that make him go. There's also an apocryphal story about Plato himself, which is quite interesting. It's probably not true, but it may carry in it a, a germ of truth which tells us something about Plato's relationship to Socrates, about which we know rather little. It's said that Plato first made the acquaintance of Socrates 
after he'd written a cycle of tragedies, and he wanted to enter these tragedies in the competition that they held during religious festivals, and he wanted to win the prize for tragedy. And Socrates had already, always been rather critical of tragedy and epic and the influence of poetry on society. So it's alleged, the story's apocryphal, that they had a dialogue, that they talked to each other, and that Plato read him some of these tragic poems, and that after reading the tragedies to Socrates and talking with Socrates about the nature of tragedy, apparently he went home and burned his tragedies and never wrote tragedy again. A fascinating turn of events. Probably not true, but just because it isn't literally true doesn't mean it isn't instructive and important. It suggests, I think rightly, that Plato was one of the great poetic talents of ancient Greece. It also suggests, again rightly, I think, that Socrates had great misgivings about the influence of tragedy and epic on society. And it also suggests that the Platonic dialogue is in some respects a moving beyond the form of epic and tragedy, which had been characteristic of the high culture of Periclean Athens. And in fact, it's a new art form which tries to remedy some of the defects which Socrates pointed out in tragedy as a whole. In other words, Plato was such a profound and gifted poet that he was able to construct a new kind of poetic mode or a poetic genre called the Socratic dialogue. And ever since, no one has ever written a really good dialogue. I mean, perhaps Hume wrote a few, but the really poetic and gripping and yet philosophically important dialogues are essentially restricted to Plato himself. Perhaps it's the case that all the greatest of poets not only have to come up with their own subject matter and their own material, they also have to come up with their own form. And they don't have to patent the form. No one else can do it nearly so well as they can. So although the story is apocryphal, it does tell us something about the relationship between Socrates and Plato and about their ambivalent views of poetry. Now, on the other hand, for someone with such misgivings about poetry, the Platonic dialogues are shot through of, with myth. If you think of something like, uh, oh, the myth of Atlantis and the Timaeus, or the myth of the Ladder of Beauty and the Symposium, or any, any of the important dialogues have some sort of myth in them. And they move from one to another, and they kind of form a, a coherent ring of Platonic teaching, which is given in both a literal sense in many of the back and forth dialectics, but also given a poetic representation some of the time in various passages from these dialogues. Now, the big change that we see when we move from tragedy to the Platonic dialogue is that instead of having a tragic hero who has some fatal flaw and this fatal flaw leads to a downfall and we get a catharsis of fear and pity, what we get instead in the Platonic dialogues is a new kind of hero, not a tragic hero, but a philosophical hero. In other words, Socrates himself is the supplanter of the tragic hero. In other words, we have a new alternative hero. Instead of the hero of tragedy that we get in, say, Aeschylus or Sophocles, or the uh, he, uh, epic hero that we get in Homer, we get a new kind of hero, a philosophical hero who, instead of killing people and being a man of passion and violence the way the Homeric hero is, we get a hero of reason, a hero of insight and logic, who improves men rather than harming them who benefits the world rather than destroying it, who has an obligation to improve those around him rather than gratify his own individual passions and lusts. Now, the argument that Plato made in the Republic 
has been criticized by many people and it deserves that criticism. I don't think anyone nowadays would want to advocate a closed society in which we were unable to speak our minds freely, in which some kind of platonic censor prevented us from encountering the art forms and the examples of art that we wish to. On the other hand, it is worth noting that the argument that Plato makes about the Homeric heroes, about the tragic heroes, about the epic and tragedy which have been so important a part of the artistic life of Greece is exactly the same argument that the accusers of Socrates made against him. Socrates was condemned to death because it was said that he corrupted the youth of Athens and that it made them disbelieve in the traditional gods and that, it harmed their, and that he harmed their souls. Well, Plato turns that around in the Republic when he talks about censoring the poets and limiting the myths that the, young ch uh, the children will get. And he says, no, the real corruptors of youth are these poets who perhaps are divinely inspired, but don't really understand what they're doing. They have a kind of sacred madness, which leads them to generate stories and um, artistic constructs that they don't themselves comprehend and that may or may not be good for people. And often, the harm that they do is irrevocable and can't be taken back. So in other words, he turns the tables on the accusers of Socrates in the Republic, charges them with the very thing that they condemned Socrates for. Now, in the Platonic hierarchy, in other words, Plato has a, a very detailed and complicated conception of ontology. Ontology, as I said before, is speech about beings. It's the, the kind of quality that different beings have. And it's found in the Republic in something called the divided line. And at the top of this hierarchy, we find uh, the form of the good, which is the source of all being and the source of all reality. Below that are the forms, and forms are pure essences of the individual things that we encounter here in the world of space and time. Um, this cup exists only by virtue of its participation in an eternal form of the cup, which is somehow outside of space and time. And all the cups that you have in front of you to drink coffee from all participate in this form of cupness. Well, below that, we come to the level of space and time, physical objects. And below that, at the very bottom, of the ontological hierarchy, what we see is that down there is the realm of shadows and imitation, and under imitation, Plato places all works of art. In other words, this cup only exists by virtue of the fact that it participates in the eternal form of cupness, which is someplace in heaven or up in the sky or outside the world of space and time. But if I were to give you a, an oil painting of this cup, what I would have is something even less real than that, because I, what I would have is essentially an imitation cup, a representation of the cup, which itself, I mean, this physical spatio-temporal cup isn't real in the Platonic sense. It's a, a, a thin or less real image of the eternal cup. So at the very bottom of this hierarchy are the representations. We have three levels then. Reality, which is the realm of the forms, the world of space and time, the realm of objects, and then at the very bottom of that, at the bottom of our ontological hierarchy, which is also an epistemological hierarchy, we'll find out later on, do we have the representation of the cup. Now, if I were to write you a poem about the cup and talk about the cup's properties and 
uh, whatever it is that I might want to versify with regard to the cup, that also would be a representation or imitation of a cup. And that poem, like my oil painting of the cup, would be at the very bottom of this ontological hierarchy. So in other words, Plato devalues poetry. He says, look, this world of space and time, that isn't real. Even less real than that is the world of imitations. And the whole world of art is the world of imitations. So that means that artists are those people who create imitations of a world that isn't even real because the reality of the world of space and time is all derived from the realms of forms. So at the very bottom of the ontological and epistemological hierarchy is the realm of art, the realm of imitation or representation. How then do we find so much poetry in Plato? In other words, what's all this stuff doing there? You would imagine that somebody that liked math as much as Socrates and Plato appear to and disapprove or at least devalue poetry to such a great extent would give you a, a books full of theorems, would, would give you things like the theorem of Pythagoras, would give you geometry or some other really existing thing, some formal knowledge. At the very least, it would be dialectic, which leads you to ultimate truth and ultimate knowledge about the forms. And yet, the Platonic dialogues are shot through with poetry. How did that stuff get here? If Plato isn't to be accused by his own observation about the nature of poetry. It's not real stuff. Often it leads people astray. It has many, many potential evils to it. It's a hard question to, to answer because of the complexity and difficulty of some of these myths. But I think it's worth our consideration because uh, it gives us a certain degree of insight into the Platonic project and will tell us things that we would otherwise not notice about the structure of the Platonic dialogues and the way in which Plato thinks about the world. Now, first off, we should note the fact that Plato acknowledges the power and significance of poetry. While it is potentially very dangerous and might miseducate people, it is at least a moderately helpful friend and a very dangerous enemy. So the true philosopher is going to want poetry on his side. He just wants it tamed and sort of housebroken so it doesn't make a mess of his philosophical system and so it doesn't undermine his attempt to educate the people that he's talking to. Because the, the good man is always the educator and the philosopher feels an obligation or knows that he has a moral obligation to do what he can to improve the world by educating it. We'll come back to this when we talk about Socrates himself. Now, we might want to think about the idea that there are different functions performed by the myths in Plato. One function would be to protect stupid people from themselves. In other words, perhaps you don't have the ability, or perhaps you're just a child, or perhaps you're just inter uh, your character is vicious. There are a number of possible contingencies in which a person may not be fertile ground for the Platonic teachings. In other words, they may, be they may not have access, for one re reason or another, to true rationality. Suppose you're talking to someone that's crazy. Suppose you're talking to a six-year-old. Suppose you're talking to someone that has some sort of problem in the way they think, and you can't, at least at this point in time, give them access to reality. The next best thing you can give them, if you can't give them knowledge, is to give them what Plato would call true opinion, which is like knowledge. It'll get them to behave as if they had knowledge, but all they'll have is the shadow or the semblance or the imitation of knowledge, a representation of knowledge. So one reason why Plato introduces myths into his dialogues is to insulate the feeble interlocutor 
and protect him from himself. If you think about any of you who have read the dialogue called the Mino, which is probably the most accessible of the dialogues, if you're going to start reading the Platonic dialogues, it's short and pithy and a very good introduction. Well, Mino is one of the dumbest guys Socrates ever talked to. I mean, he's obviously stupid, he won't think, you can't get him to do anything. At the end of their discussion, they come to the ironic conclusion that virtue comes from the gods. It can't be taught, nobody knows what it is, nobody knows where it comes from, and it doubtless comes from the gods. Now, that ending is ironic. That's not meant intentionally. It's a fiction, or a lie, or a myth, if you see what I'm saying. He's engaging in a poetic, imaginary flight. On the other hand, good poetry, like the Platonic myths, are lies that tell the truth. The truth that they tell is a moral truth, not a literal truth. And you have to be able to read between the lines to get beyond the literal meaning. Now, Mino is such a dumb guy who's been miseducated by a sophist named Gorgias that, he's that he refuses to think. Plato or Socrates can't get him to use his head no matter what's he, what he says to him. The next best thing is an ironic ending in which he sends uh, uh, Mino toddling off thinking, well, the goods co good, uh, virtue comes from the gods. I used to think that I didn't know what it was or what it was about or how it worked, but now I know it comes from the gods. He remains stupid, but he has now been moved towards an opinion which gets him to act almost as if he had philosophical knowledge. It's the next best thing. So you can protect people from themselves, feeble interlocutors, or perhaps children, when he talks about education in the Republic, since the reasoning power of children is different in degree and different in kind from that of adults. Well, and perhaps the best thing you can give them is salutary myths. It makes a certain amount of sense. That's one reason. A second reason that Plato introduces myths into his dialogues is to protect not stupid interlocutors, but stupid readers. In other words, the Platonic dialogues are written in an intentionally obscure, multi-layered style. In other words, there are meanings below meanings and within meanings. It's like peeling an onion. And not all the meanings are going to be accessible to everyone. Not everyone is called to be a philosopher. Not everyone has that gold in their soul which gives them the potential to truly understand the Platonic teachings. And God knows a great deal of misuse could be made of these teachings, particularly by people who don't understand them but think that they do. A feeble interlocutor poses the same problem that a feeble reader does. Potentially, philosophical arguments are dynamite. They upset tradition. They are potentially a danger to the person's activities in life and their behavior towards others. The best thing to do then, if they, are not, if they don't have the capacity to truly understand the Platonic dialogues, give them true opinion. Give them some idea that will get them to behave the way they ought, whether they are capable of understanding the point of the Platonic dialogue or not. And I think that we're going to see a, an example of that when I talk a little bit later about the myth of Ur at the end of the Republic. There are two other reasons why I believe we might see myth and poetic invention introduced into the, into the Platonic Dialogues. One reason is propedeutic. If you have a person who has not yet reached philosophical insight, who doesn't yet have Socratic philosophical understanding, it is possible to hasten their absorption of philosophical understanding and increase their capacity for knowledge and learning to set them upon the road of true philosophical knowledge by using a myth which kind of sets the ball rolling in the right direction. It, it will, in that case, be a lie that tells the truth.
I will call these myths the propedeutic myths, the myths that move a student of philosophy in the direction of true philosophical knowledge, which, of course, is knowledge of the forms in Plato's view. A final reason, or perhaps not the final, but one more reason why we see myth and poetry introduced into the Platonic dialogues is that Plato is very well aware of the fact that there is no such thing as presuppositionless thought. In other words, we can't bootstrap ourselves into the stratosphere where the forms are kept without making certain assumptions, without taking things as axiomatic. Remember that Plato had great admiration for the achievements of geometry, and he had great admiration for mathematics as being a kind of real knowledge of real mathematical entities. But if you've ever studied math, and I assume that most of us have, you notice that even Euclid, when he begins his elements, starts by stating certain axioms. And axioms don't get proven, they just plain get stated. Let x be the set of all rational numbers, or let y be a plane, or something like that. It simply has to be stated dogmatically. You can't prove axioms. They are prior to rational proof. Well, that's not just true about mathematical systems. It's also true about political systems. It's true about moral systems. It's true about epistemological systems. It's true about ontological systems. And when stating the presuppositions or fundamental axioms of his, of his philosophy, what Plato does, instead of simply pounding the desk and stating these things dogmatically, let, the re let reality be the realm of the forms, he gives you a charming myth which is propedeutic towards understanding what his policy and intention really is. He's trying to move you in the direction. Now, remember that Plato, even though he uses quite a few myths, never mistakes myth for reality. In other words, Plato doesn't say at the end of the Republic that Ur is a real guy, is a real man who came back down to Earth and you know, had seen the fate of people who die and things like that. He says, I think the truth might be something like this. Now, Whenever Plato understates his case, he's waving a flag towards the philosophically sophisticated, saying, look, this isn't conclusive. It's just meant to be persuasive. I can't give you conclusive arguments about my fundamental axioms, about my basic assumptions. For example, in the myth of the metals, he talks about the fundamental assumption of his political and uh, epistemological system that all souls are not equal, that human beings are basically unequal. But this is just an axiom or a dogma, and Plato would like to avoid that insofar as possible, so it gives you a pretty myth to wrap it up in. It's more accessible, it prevents the philosophically illiterate or the philosophically dangerous from comprehending it, and yet those of us who are philosophically sophisticated, who have some idea of what is going on here, are not intended to take this as being a, de as a demonstrative proof. Plato knows that. It's not that he's trying to put one over on us. He's just trying to put one over on the ones that you can't do anything else with. Okay? That's very important. The primitives, the basic entities, which don't get a definition or which don't get a demonstration, are wrapped up in poetic myths. Right? And every system has its primitives. Imagine if uh, in 10th grade, when your teacher was telling you, let this be a line and let this be a three-dimensional space, suppose you ask the teacher, what is space? Well, you know, space. I mean, no one's going to define space for you. It's a kind of intuitive, basic, primitive idea. All axiomatic systems work that way. And so does Plato's, or so do Plato's ideas. So he has to have some starting point, and these starting points are usually flagged with these myths.
Poetry can persuade where reason is not able to demonstrate things for you. And that's the next best thing. Since all systematic thought has starting points, has primitive elements, has axioms, which are not susceptible to demonstration, it turns out then that myths really aren't an option, they're a necessity. I mean, you could state it dogmatically, but one way or another, you have to make this jump. And myths, as a way of doing that, are easiest, and they cover a number of other bases, like preventing the philosophically dangerous or the foolish or the unwise from really grasping the full significance of what's going on. It gives them as much as they can possibly handle. And since myths are necessary, our judgment of whether we want to accept or reject a myth will come on a couple of different grounds. The first ground will be whether it's adequate to our experience of the world. Another ground will be whether it's logically continuous with the other things that we know. And the final and most important ground for judging myth is how do we anticipate people will behave if they believe this myth? A good myth is one that gets people to do good stuff. And a bad myth is one that gets people to do bad stuff. And now can you see the point of why Plato has such an animus towards the Homeric myths? It persuades young men that they ought to be Achilles, that they ought to be wrathful, that they ought to be her heroic in both the good and the bad sense of that term. They ought to be self-indulgent prima donnas. That's the bad element of the myth. Plato wants to replace that myth with a set of myths that are going to have better consequences, yet are equally logically coherent. Now, let's think about some of these myths. A great many of them are found in the Republic, and I'd like to look at four of the four main myths in the Republic because they're very instructive, and they also shed light back on the, act the philosophical activity that's going on in the Republic itself. Take number one. The first of the big myths in the Republic is called the myth of Gyges' ancestor. And it's found in the beginning of book two where Socrates is talking to Glaucon. And it turns out that the myth is very short but very compact. There's quite a bit going on in this myth. And most of my students, when I teach uh, the Republic, just whip right through this and it, it looks like something that just got thrown in. Let me tell you in advance. Nothing just gets thrown into the Platonic dialogues. Every word Every syllable, every idea is there for a reason. And this particular myth is what I will call a propedeutic myth. It's going to help us onward towards the process of getting real philosophical sophistication. Here's the myth. Gyges' ancestor, Gyges was a Lydian, was a shepherd for the king. And he took care of the, the sheep. And he was out in the field one day. There was an earthquake, and the earth opened up. And he saw down at the bottom... And when he went down to investigate, a hollow bronze horse, which was hollowed out, and the sides of it he could see through because they were glass, and inside he saw the body of a hero. And on that hero's hand, there was a gold ring. And Gaiji's ancestor stole this gold ring, went up and said, wow, you know, this is kind of a nice thing to have. In playing with the ring, he found that when he turned it back to front, when he turned the collet around towards the inside of his hand, it made him invisible. As a consequence of that, Gyges was able to go back to the king of Lydia, make himself invisible, have sex with the king's wife, kill the king, and become the king of Lydia. And that's the whole of the story. That's it. Now, it wouldn't seem to be an all that uh, suggestive a myth, but in fact, every word and every idea and every image is chosen very carefully. First off, we have two kinds of metals mentioned in this myth, gold and bronze. Whenever you read the Republic, when you see gold, it means philosophical insight and rationality. 
education, real knowledge, it's, connotes all those things. And bronze, inside, remember what, what happens? Gaiji's ancestor goes down and sees a hollow bronze horse. Now, first of all, you may have heard of another Greek poem that features a, a hollow horse, right? It's not an accident that got in. It's a real nasty dig at Homer, right? The bad educator, it's a parable about bad education. What happens to a man who goes down? Now, remember that later on when we get to the divided line, going up and going down? Going up is always going up the divided line towards the realm of philosophical knowledge and philosophical insight. So when we learn, when we are truly educated, we go up. And what happens when we go down? We go from the natural, normal, desirable state of things towards miseducation, towards ignorance. Down he goes. He goes down and finds inside this hollow horse, I mean, it could be anything. It could have been a hollow elephant. Think about what the hollow horse means. Finds inside this hollow horse the body, not the soul, but the body of a hero. Why? Soul juxtaposed to body, you get the whole platonic idea here. Finds the shell of a hero, but not the reality of a hero, because the reality of human life is the soul, which is immortal. The body doesn't matter. The body is what appeals to the bronze, which is why he's in a bronze horse, and why this bronze man is now subverting the order of nature. He steals a gold ring, and then turns the gold ring around, opposite to the way that it's supposed to be, an inversion, of the normal order of things. And what happens? Our shepherd becomes king, kills his master, commits crimes and transgressions, takes control of the state, engages in adultery. In other words, it's a very carefully compacted parable about education and miseducation. And you really can't understand Plato's Republic until you've read it three or four or five times. I mean, the first time you go through this, since you haven't gotten to the myth of the cave yet, you haven't gotten to the divided line and the myth of the metals, you really can't completely understand this. But when you go back and look at that myth of Gyges, it is very clear that what he is saying is that this will lead you on to the right path if you go back and read this with new eyes after you've looked at the Republic very carefully once or twice. This myth is meant to be propedeutic, and it's also meant to be illustrative of a number of the themes. It compacts many Platonic ideas, or ideas is the wrong word, Platonic concepts, in ways in which it would be very hard to do in a dialectical, literal way. It's a beautifully elegant myth. There are no throwaway lines in the Republic. It's too well-crafted. Now, what are we going to learn about after we finish this discussion about Gaiji's ancestor? Education, propedeutic towards our understanding of what real education is, moving from philosophical insight up and down, right? Up and down, the various metals, the hollow horse, all connect to the other themes in the Republic. Now, a second uh, myth of the Republic, which is also very suggestive and very important, we find this in book three. It's the myth of the metals. Now, in the myth of the metals, what Socrates says is that we are going to teach in our ideal city, we're going to raise the gold, the silver, and the bronze children, the children with gold, uh, that have uh, the appetitive souls and the spirited souls and the rational souls, the children who are going to become guardians and auxiliaries and uh, common people in the Republic, craftsmen and artisans and farmers. We are going to tell these people that the process of their education was not real that it was like a dream, that it was in fact something not 
consistent with reality. We're going to tell each of these people that while they thought they were being educated, in fact they weren't, what was really going on is that they were hidden in the earth and that their mother earth placed in each of their souls gold, silver, or bronze, and this, rather than the process of education, is what fits them for their particular role in the ideal city, in the perfect platonic society. Now, what's the point of this? Well, a couple of points are made here. In the first case, it's meant to be what Plato calls uh, a sort of noble lie. It's a lie that tells the truth. They do, in fact, have aptitudes for different functions in society, but we don't want to have society take the blame or bear the onus of creating these, uh, these inequalities artificially. So instead, we say that your, your mother is the earth and the gods put these metals into your soul. That's why we structure society in the way that we do. The point, of course, is to, under, uh, to, to first of all, assert the basic axiom of platonic politics and platonic ethics and platonic epistemology, which is that souls are basically not equal. Now, you could assume either. Some systems, like the system that we have today, is that there's, we assume the equality of all people. Plato wants to assume the opposite. But whatever you assume, there's no way of demonstrating that souls are or are not equal. I don't know what would count as a proof of such a thing. So rather than try and give you a demonstration which Plato couldn't possibly provide, what he gives it to you is a, a, a myth which wraps it up like a package, and it's something that you can open later on when you complete the Platonic Dialogues and make some sense of this. So we keep society quiet and stable by preventing people from rebelling against their state and society by telling them a useful and appropriate myth. If it is good for individual people, and if it is good for the society as a whole, then it is what Plato would call good poetry, a lie that tells the truth. Now we may think today, that that's a very evil thing to tell people lies, but we do it all the time, right? I mean, in other words, it's not that, that mythology or poetry is an option in society. We all have it. Um, we have the assumption, our basic uh, belief about our, or basic myth about our society is that people are equal. We allow for equality before the law and things like that. But is that a literal fact or is that one of the myths we've, we've accepted? I mean, if we were to say that people are equal rather than unequal, do we mean that they're equally tall, they're equally virtuous, that they're equally learned? No. What we mean is that they're equal before the law. Where this actually comes from, as a matter of historical fact, is the idea that all souls are equal in the sight of God. Right? It's a Judeo-Christian myth. Now, what I'm saying here is not that this is false. I mean, I think that in the literal sense it is a myth, but rather that this is a lie that tells the truth. We choose to believe that people are equal and that they have equal rights or equal, acts, equal uh, rights before the law, things like that, because we think the consequences of this belief are good, that it gets people to behave well. And we think that the consequences of believing people are unequal, of accepting that myth, are that people behave badly. If you think about Nazism and things like that, there's a you know, good reason to believe that. But my point is, is that we have a different set of, of observations and a different set of experiences. So we come to a different conclusion. But the reason why we come to a conclusion that's different from Plato's is at bottom the same. Plato thought that believing in human inequality would make society better and would make individual people behave well. We think that, that holding on to the myth of human equality would make society better and make people behave well. We have some dispute about what we think would result in good behavior, but our reason for holding on to one myth or the other turns out to be quite the same. Other myths, which are quite benign and we believe and we, we still give to our children, Aesop's fables. Remember that Socrates, when he was in prison just before he died, could have chosen any 
fictional, any lie, any poetic myth to turn into verse. He chooses Aesop's fables. Why? Because they have a morally educative point. They're didactic. And we tell kids about the, the tortoise and the hare all the time. And it doesn't strike me as the worst thing that we tell them. It doesn't follow from that that I think that the tortoise is a real person or a real thing and that the hare is a real thing. I, I don't really think that they had a marathon race. But I think that it does carry across to children who aren't able to grasp the idea that diligence and perseverance are good things. If you tell them the story of the tortoise and the hare, they understand it and they work hard in first grade. And that's the point of the story, isn't it? It's not a story about zoology. And once you realize that it's not a, po a story about zoology and that the fact that there is no such thing as the tortoise and the hare is more or less beside the point, well, if it gets the kids to work hard in first grade, I think it's just great. And it's not the only example. I mean, our society and every society is replete with such myths. Let's think about the fact that in the early part of December all over America, or not all over, but in many parts of America, at dinner tables, mothers and fathers tell their children that if the kids don't eat their spinach, Santa Claus isn't coming. He only comes for good girls and boys who eat their spinach. And it doesn't follow that I believe that Santa is a literal thing, but it seems to me a useful myth in order to get kids to eat their spinach. And if they eat their spinach, since they're getting toys at Christmas anyway, why not tell them that Santa only brings toys to good girls and boys? If it does the job, if it improves the hearer, if it has that pragmatic advantage, well, then it's a good myth. We judge a myth on the basis of whether it's consistent and stuff like that, but also ultimately on the basis of whether we anticipate good behavior as a consequence of it. Right? Just think about uh, the fact that we swear people in. They're going to give testimony in a court of law. We ask the, the ancient god, the, the, the sky daddy, the ancient god of the Semites, to come down and supervise the giving of this testimony. It doesn't follow from that that I want people not to be sworn in. I think swearing people in probably does a certain amount of good to our judicial processes. But it doesn't really follow that I believe that God is watching them and he's going to strike them dead or some such thing. You see what I'm saying? It's a useful myth. And since we have to have myths, we can't entirely dispense with them. Let's have ones that get people to behave well. I think Plato's got a good point here. Now, the most arresting and important and moving of the myths in the Republic, I would say, is the myth of the cave and the divided line. Once you've read books four and five, uh, five and six and seven of the Republic, you see Platonic ontology. It becomes real for you. It grips you not just by your rational faculties, but also by your imagination. And why should the devil have all the good poetry? Why shouldn't the good guys have good poetry once in a while? If it does the job, well, let's have poetry on our side if it advances the cause of philosophic insight. The myth of the cave works something like this. Plato says that the unphilosophic human condition is like a person who is stuck in a dark cave. And they're chained by the neck and chained by the legs so that they can't take their eyes off a screen on a wall of the cave. Behind them, there is a fire, and there are certain people who bring out uh, objects which cast shadows on the wall. And these poor, wretched, benighted people in the cave believe these shadows to be reality. And as a result, they are manipulated by these people, their fellow dwellers in the cave. And of course, the, the people who are locked in, who believe shadows to be reality, are the average de person of Athens, the, the demos of Athens. The people who manipulate them are the demagogues and the politicians and the poets, who themselves are in the realm of darkness, who really don't understand true philosophical reality. And yet, at the same time, 
they are somehow manipulators of this darkness. They are the, the kind of the kings of the darkness. Now, Plato says that the philosophical activity, the activity of coming to real knowledge, is like breaking the chains of illusion, and gradually, by, by slow degrees, using the dialectic, it turns out later, moving up out of the cave into the realm of philosophical light. And, of course, the sun is analogized to the form of the good, which generates all our knowledge and all our being and all reality. Once the philosophical thinker has been released from the realm of shadows and goes up the, out the mouth of the cave, he has gotten to real knowledge. And there's all kinds of nice things that you can build into this myth, which Plato does. For example, we often don't believe the first results of our philosophical inquiries. It sounds too queer. It sounds too strange. It, it makes too great a strain on our, on our credulity. Plato says, well, this is like a man who's lived in a cave all his life, coming out into the sunshine, and the lights hurt his eyes, like, like these hurt mine, as a matter of fact. And <laughs> he says, well, we squint a little bit, and it takes some getting used to, but after you start thinking about it, and you become accustomed to the real light, you would never trade the realm of reality, the realm of philosophical insight and light for the darkness and shadows. No matter how many people are down there, no matter how many people tell you you are wrong, no matter how many people say, that's absurd, there's no such thing as sunshine, that, that, that shadow on the wall, that's reality. Look, all of us believe that. You begin to think for yourself because you've finally seen the light. And nothing can take the place of that. Another nice part of this myth, which dovetails so beautifully, I mean, you only get one or two ideas like this in your life, and Plato really milks this for all it's worth. We really can't talk about the form of the good. I mean, it's the source of all reality and the source of all knowledge and all kinds of great stuff, but you can't say a great deal about the form of the good. It, you get immediate apprehension of it, perhaps, when you have that ultimate philosophical insight, but the fact of the matter is, it's hard to talk about any kind of sensible way. It's like theologians trying to talk about God. Good luck. What Plato says is that, you know, even though we all agree that there is some such thing as the sun, and that the sun is what, when we go outside, is the sun is what informs us about the facts of the world because, we, you know, it illuminates the world for us, we can't look directly at the sun. Well, not being able to look directly at the sun is like not being able to talk directly about the form of the good. You can apprehend it, and you know that it's there, and you know that it generates the reality of all the other things that you could possibly be knowledgeable about. But the fact of the matter is you can't look directly in the eye of the sun and you can't directly talk about the form of the good. It is somehow outside our capacities. We know it's there and we can have no sensible doubt about the existence of the sun. Look at the world around us. On the other hand, Plato, uh, on the other hand we can't talk about it. Plato wants to say that that's analogous to the form of the good. The good is like the sun. Now, that's not the most illuminating statement you could possibly make. The good is like the sun. I've thought about that an awful lot, and the more I think about it, the more I think, well, that gets me nowhere. Not exactly nowhere. At one time, it helped me climb the, the ladder so that I could understand uh, Plato's philosophy. It's a little bit like what Wittgenstein says about the philosophy of language, that you climb this ladder to get to the roof, but once you're there, you really don't need the ladder anymore. That's what Plato wants his myths to be used for. He wants you to climb the ladder of mythology so that you can get up and out of the cave. But once you're there, he doesn't expect you to be a blockhead and to think that the good is really the sun. Right? That's for kids and for dopes. If you are a kid or a dope, it's the best you can do. Well, that's fine. But the idea is that we would like you to have real understanding. 
This is propedeutic. It tries to move you in that direction. This is surely the greatest of the Platonic myths, and it connects back to all the other Platonic dialogues and all the other Platonic doctrines. The idea that, uh, that philosophy is for the few, the idea that the world uh, that most people believe in is a world of shadows, remember that with the ontological doctrine, the world of space and time isn't real, stuff like that, all dovetails beautifully. It's an inspired conception, and it's one of the most important and famous passages in all of Plato. There's a very interesting final myth in the 10th book of the Republic, the concluding book. And this is the myth of Ur. Ur was a man who died and came back. Most of the great world religions have somebody like this, or a couple of people like this, or maybe a whole bunch of people. But he comes back and tells us about the afterlife, because apparently we find the myth of an afterlife useful in many respects. And what happens is, it turns out that Ur found out that after you die, you go to a place of rewards and punishments, and everybody's requited tenfold for their goods and their evils. And if you were good in life, then you get supreme bliss. And if you were bad in life, you get, supreme, you get the appropriate torment. But since the soul is immortal, after a certain period of time, I forget if it's 3,000 years or 10,000 years, if you see what I'm saying, the number of years isn't all that important. After a whole bunch of time of, of being either happy and rewarded or sad and punished, you're forced to come back. And here's how you come back. You are reincarnated. Each person is given the chance to choose the life they will lead in the next life, to choose the status, to choose, to choose their circumstances. And what they do is this. They are allowed to choose the life of an animal or the life of a man and the different kinds of men that they might choose. Bad men... People who have bad educations and bad souls, they choose the life of a tyrant because they think that's good. And of course, they're wretched now and they're wretched then, and that's just what they deserve. Perfect justice. Homeric heroes, silver men, great-spirited men, it turns out, choose the life of predatory animals. Another dig at Homer. He never lets up on Homer. He's so jealous. Achilles decides to become a lion, and I think Ajax becomes an eagle, and you get, uh, well, whatever. I mean, they become predatory animals. Again, it's not all that much of a, uh, of a question of what they become. The idea is that you get paid back, and then you're dipped into a river which makes you forget the fact that you chose. What does it mean? It means that everyone is responsible for the life they choose. You can't blame it on the gods. Don't slough this off. It's not fate. The point here is that this is what I would say one of those myths that Plato wants to fence off his doctrines with. In other words, if you, too, if you read the whole Republic, perhaps just once, or perhaps more than once, more than once if you have any brains, suppose you're just too stupid, or too busy, or too evil to really comprehend what's going on here. Well, then he's got a scary story for you. Check this out. The scary story is that this is a place of eternal rewards and punishments. You want to be a bug? You want to be a worm? You want to be an eagle? You want to be good. And don't blame it on the gods. It's your fault. The point here is, is that this is one of those myths which is to prevent the feeble interlocutor from hurting himself and other people and to prevent him from hurting his society. Plato's myths are a way of giving access to knowledge. It's the next best thing.